Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? You know how painful it is. Asseval helps your in-house team by taking tough tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia-Pacific, which includes onboarding, procurement, device management, real-time IT support, offboarding, and more. Gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place with our state-of-the-art platform. Check out Esevel, E-S-E-V-E-L.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code BRAVE for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to BRAVE. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Al, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, sci-fi nerd, and dad of two daughters. Mondays for your weekly tech news debate with Shiyan Ko, managing partner of Hustle Fund. Wednesdays for interviews of regional changemakers covering both the highs and lows of leadership. Fridays for personal diary insights and listener questions and answers. Join our movement of over 12,000 members for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.bravesea.com. Hey, morning, Adriel. Another week, another Q&A. Yeah, good to see you, Jeremy. I think this is, you know, a question that both of us probably get a lot of species, right, from founders, which is, how do you pick a good VC, especially when you're talking to multiple VCs in Singapore, across the region, in your local market for those that are not based in Singapore? So what are your thoughts on this as, you know, someone who has founded companies and it's now a VC? Yeah, and we got asked that question pretty much last night, you know, as part of that process. And I thought that was uh, something worth answering again and sharing broadly, right? So, you know, at the end of the day, why do you want to pick a good VC, right? You want to pick a good VC because you are looking to build a large company, right? And building a large company is very hard because there is a one in 40 chance of becoming a billion dollar company. There is a two or three in 40 chance of becoming a large company that's there. And then pretty much 35 out of 40, which is most of the time, the company is going to wind down, right? And so I think there's a large spread of outcomes. It's very scary. And the true enemy is not the VC, it's not a founder, it's not a customer, right? It's about the reality of the status quo and, you know, the reality that it's a tough business to build, right? And which is why I think everybody's working so hard, right? You have superstar founders, superstar coaches, superstar VCs, all working together very, very hard to build something amazing. And that's why we celebrate them when they do succeed. And so I think picking a good VC is part of that recipe, right? Part of that magic that happens when a great founder meets a great VC. And fundamentally, when you're picking a good VC, what you're looking for is that you're trying to get better odds. So the odds are one in 40, right? And that's already assuming based on the data that you raise money from a reputable VC. But the truth is there's lots of different VCs out there and you have to be thoughtful about the process. So let me kind of walk you through, I think, the chronological approach of how to pick a good VC. I think the fact of the matter is that, first of all, you've got to build a great business, right? With product market fit. 
And that gives you lots of capital optionality. And what I mean by that is that it doesn't necessarily mean, of course, that you had to build a billion dollar company in order to raise millions of dollars. I think what it means is that I think if you're trying to raise from angel capital, then you should have the risk, for example, some of the product market fit, you have demos, you have MVPs, you're actually very thoughtful about strategy. You can try to raise Series A, you should already achieve full product market fit, you should quote metrics, you should have revenue numbers, you should be growing very nicely. So you should really be thoughtful about how you're bracketing the set of de-risk experimental S milestones that help you understand the business model in a way that's proportionate to what the capital is looking for, right? And what that means actually, and this is how I try to think about it a little bit is, you know, I think from capital processes, if you build a good business is that you get lots of capital options, right? And of course, the best source of capital is always your customers and your partners. Because if you're building something that people want, your customers are going to be very happy to prepay, to invest in you, to give you debt, you know, I think they're excited to work with you and help source capital, right? And so customers and partners are a great, I think, layer one, right? The second next layer, of course, your friends and family and former colleagues, right? These are people who know you, they trust you, they know who you've been and they know and believe in who you're going to become. And so they're willing to put money now to share and be part of that journey, right? And so that's another capital option. And then thirdly, of course, you have angels and syndicates who are also there and they are professional, they're individuals, they're there out of passion, they're there because they care, they're there because they want to earn a return. But these angels and syndicates actually form quite a significant form of capital, especially for early stage founders, who I find normally tend to skip this stage of capital and try to go straight to more the forms of capital. And of course, the truth is, if you're building a good business, at some stage, you want to get bank debt and venture debt, right? Which is where there's going to be interest rates, there's going to be repayments, there's a loan. But these are all opportunities, including government grants, right? And government-backed loans that actually provide you enough source of capital. And now, of course, then there are family offices as well as VCs, which are more professional investors who are managing other people's money, right? And they're trying to invest in a professional way. Now, when I say this, the reason why I'm saying build a great business is not because of that, but in order to pick a good VC, you need to basically have built a good enough business to be able to attract multiple forms of capital so that you have lots of capital options. And that gives you the confidence to approach the capital markets and be in a good a negotiating position to not just attract VCs, but also to negotiate and have a good composition for the future. Because now you're thoughtful, you understand what business actually is and you know what the future looks like. And so you know the team that you want to have. And that brings me to the second piece, which is that you want to run a process that lets you evaluate multiple VCs in parallel. So again, you know, you've got your capital for your customers, your friends and family, your syndicates, your bank debt, and venture debt, maybe sometimes they office money from previous rounds or, you know, they're part of the current round. But you want to run a process that lets you run and evaluate multiple VCs. And this is where kind of like, it's tough, right? And this is like, you know, point to A, to B, to C, right? Which is, the truth is, there are, there are obviously going to be professional VCs and there are unprofessional VCs. And what I mean by that is there will be VCs who, I remember when I was a founder, it's like, they turn up on time, they write your materials, they understand something and they ask questions. And there are people who are not professional, right? Because they're kind of like asking all kinds of random questions. They're late, you know, this is not there, right? So I think that's like the minimum that you can expect because these are, people whose full-time job is to be a VC, right? And so you expect them to be professional versus unprofessional. And I think that's something that's, I think, very easy to evaluate in the first interaction, the second, the third, the fourth, right? The second part, of course, is something that's a little bit 
less obvious, but also very easy to get, which is that some people you get along with, there are some VCs that you don't like, right? And I think that's a bit of a taste factor. And I think sometimes some founders overweight it and some founders underweight it. But I think it's an important part of the overall formula, right? Which is that you want to be working with someone that you like and who likes you because this is going to be a long-term working relationship. And so you've got to get along with the person, right? And so sometimes if you really can't get along, then so be it. You know, there's no point pushing on that relationship. But on the other hand, of course, there are some folks that, you know, are more direct, more frank, and then maybe you don't like them initially, but eventually you kind of like get along with them because you understand the relationship and you understand what it is. So I think you just have to be careful about that, right? You know, there's some people you can't get along with, so be it. But I think it's questions like, who do you really get along with? Who do you respect, right? And I think the third one is probably the hardest to evaluate. And I've fallen prey to that as a founder, which is some that really understand your business and the future of your company and some that don't. And this is the hardest part to evaluate because the truth is, you know, anyone who's professional and someone who gets along is going to be very agreeable, right? So the BC is going to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you want to have this a wonderful conversation about A or B or C and you know, you want to walk away feeling nice, right? But you know, I think what you got to sit down with is like, does this person understand the business? And if I was to boil it down a little bit further is there are different layers of that, right? I think one part of this, is this person curious about your business, curious about the assumptions, curious about experiments, and curious about the risk factors that are going to be happening in the future? Because the truth is, if you're building something that's never been built before, then there's no way, it's not like Google has it, ChatGPT doesn't have it. That has to be figured out together, right? And so you need a layer of curiosity that you want from the other party because nobody knows, right? So the curiosity is there, that's part of that understanding your business. Then two, of course, you want someone who's also pattern matching and thinking a little bit ahead, right? Which is based on that curiosity, can that person push that conversation forward? Which is, if this is true, then that is true. And if that is true, how does that compare to perhaps another story in a different market? Or there's a certain article that reminds me of this. But you want to have someone that understands the business in the future. And so what I'm trying to say here is that any of the, you know, 2A, 2B, 2C here, there's a founder you know, you end up in a position that you want to run a process where you get to evaluate multiple VCs the same way you would hire an employee, right? You wouldn't pitch 10 employees, only one person wants to apply, and then you look, they'll get a person to hire and say, yes, I will hire you straight away. That'd be crazy, right? Because you'd be like, no, that just because only one person wants to join my company doesn't mean that it's the right employee for you. You still have to do that thing. You want to find somebody who is a professional, someone that you like, and someone that actually understands your business. I and mean, that's the same criteria that you have to hire an executive on your company. And so I always tell founders, like, at the end of the day, you want to hire a VC, right? You know, like, don't let capital whack the dog, right? Don't let the tail whack the dog. Don't let capital whack the business. You are trying to hire an executive who's going to be on your board for a long time, you know? At minimum, maybe two years, maybe four years, six years, eight years, I've seen. So you want to hire someone who you believe has your interests and understands the business and can execute, right? And the fact of the matter is that you, you ran a process that only lets you have one offer. The truth is you didn't get to decide. I think you still get to decide to walk away and try again later down the road. But the truth is when you only have one offer, you can't really decide. And so at the end of the day, you want to run a process that lets you evaluate multiple VCs the way that you would evaluate multiple executive hires to join a team. 
The last thing is that after that, you know, you pick your offer, you know, you already built a good company, so you have multiple offers. Then you want to do reference checks, right? And what's really important here is that you need to do reference checks the same way they are doing reference checks on you. So the VC is doing reference checks on you. They're doing direct reference checks that you provide them. And trust me, the VC, if they're worth their salt, they're going to be doing indirect checks. They're going to ask their friends, their mutual friends, like, hey, is this person ethical? Is this person a good operator? Is this person someone that you would like to work with again? You know, that would be doing that on you. It is on you to do the same about them. You have to do the work. Because, and I say this, because I can tell you that in my past experience, there were some VCs I did the work with and some founders I did, VCs I did not do the work with because the VCs had such a great brand you know, that I just didn't do it, right? And that was to my regret, to be honest. And so, you know, so let me explain that. The truth is every VC is going to give you references, obviously, to, for example, companies that have succeeded, right? Because the truth is, the founder succeeding, then guess what? Every VC likes hanging out with them, every VC... Is whining, dining, check in at board meetings, helping a lot, right? I mean, come on. Obviously, if the portfolio company is successful, you know, that founder is going to be very happy about the VC because the VC is all on top of it, right? But we all know that character is revealed not when times are good, but when times are bad, right? And the truth is, times are bad 39 times out of 40 times we just talked about, right? So there's so many portfolio companies that honestly, not successful, zombie, dying, close, acquired, right? And that is the norm case, okay? That is the 39 out of 40 case. It is the 19 out of 20 case. It is the 18 out of 20 case. You have to take that self-awareness pulse and I have to be like, okay, I'm going to be in for a really tough two years where I have one in 20 chance, two in 20 chance. I'm really optimistic about myself. Three in 20 chance of crushing it. But the other majority of the time is going to be really, really tough, right? So have that conversation with other founders who have gone through that 17 out of 20 chance of tough times, failure rates, and so, so forth. And have the conversations like, how did the VC work with me to de-risk the company, right? To experiment, to think through the future, to connect to other folks, right? Because if the VC doesn't do any of that, then just buy capital, right? You know, just get debt, get from your customers. If all you want is capital, there's capital out there. But if you're trying to get a VC, you want to get, you're trying to buy better odds, right? So that's really, I think the crux of it is that you got to do, therefore, those three things, which is first, build a great business with product market fit that's proportionate to your capital stage that you're doing. Secondly, therefore, on that back of that good business experimentation, run a process that lets you evaluate multiple VCs, that lets you have the ability to choose a professional, relatable, and someone who actually understands your business type of VC. Thirdly, run a solid and professional reference checks process from both successful and unsuccessful founders in their portfolio. Thanks so much, Jeremy, for running through that thought process around, you know, what's a good VC to pick, how do you even pick one? And especially that point about reference checks, right? So it's almost like doing reverse due diligence, you know, as a founder, when you're always getting the one due diligence, but that's such an important part of the fundraising process, especially when you're picking like a partner for the next 10 years. I think the big part to that question is really around like, 
what are the red flags as you sort of go through this due diligence process as your, as a founder yourself? What are the things that, you know, you should look for, whether it's in the initial conversations with the VC, the due diligence stage, or even at the point of like signing a term sheet, the discussions around the terms. Yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of different things here. At the top of it is that it is true that VC seem to pick founders, right? I think that's how the market sees it. That's how the media sees it. And I think that's how I, you know, as a founder, I saw it, right? And the truth of the matter is that on the other hand, the best founders get to pick VC, which is, and I think that's tricky part, right? It's like, there's a mindset shift, right? Which is that, are you a customer? Are you a buyer? You know I mean? So sometimes it's like the VCs are selling you and you get to buy and so, so forth, right? But customers get to choose, right? So I think there's something that you have to think of quite a bit. I think red flags that we have here is three of them that I've taught of. Obviously, there's so many red flags and so many horror stories that I experienced myself, that I've heard my friends or that I've actually seen counterparts or peers do right in the space. So I think the first one, I think that's the most obvious is, you know, I think the exploding term sheet, right? So the very fast car process. So this is an easy one, but I say this because, you know, sometimes it's not obvious, I think for first time founders is that I think it's actually okay, by the way, for a VC to issue a term sheet straight away, right? Like. They like you straight away, and then they tell you what the terms are straight away discussing the parameter range. Then maybe they issue the term sheet straight away, maybe they issue the term sheet the next day. I think that's good, right? Because it means that this VC is excited and that's kind of a position that you want to have a founder to be so that you have VCs who are passionate about what you're doing. I think what's tricky is, I think, exploding term sheets. And what I mean by that is like a term sheet where it doesn't give you sufficient time to make a decision. And I'll say that Anything below three days is really kind of like very much out of market norm. I would say a week is pretty fair. Maybe get two weeks, right? And I'm just seeing an example, but, and I think at least a week is a good time to let someone make a considered decision. And the reason why I'm trying to say this is because obviously from a good basis, a term sheet can be complicated, right? You can have, you know, obviously economic terms, you could have your control rights, you could have your board members, you could have dilution clauses. There's a whole bunch of stuff that takes time and for a first time founder, it takes time to learn, right? You're learning how to fundraise and so, so forth. So you want to take this time to talk to a lawyer. Maybe you don't even have a lawyer, right? So you want to arrange a lawyer, talk to the lawyer, get, you know, the coffee first, the consultation first, and then get his legal advice very quickly to get a point of view. You want to speak with your co-founders and say like, this is the decision I've made or this is the options I have. It gives you the opportunity maybe to tell a bunch of other VCs, I have to say, right? To say, hey, you know, I have an offer and I would like you to come in now and make a decision and then go there. Gives you time to negotiate and to say, maybe we can move some of these parameters, even though maybe you care much about economic, but I care about control rights. Or I care about control rights, I can give a bit more on economic sides. But there's a conversation I can have, right? And now, of course, it gives you time to think through the strategy because the VC now has implied strategy to see you, to see a future. And you need to be like, well, hold up, you know, they see a vision of me as a financial company. Or the other VC thinks of me as a full stack company, right? And that's a different vision of the future. You know, you want that week to just sit down because you, when you sign a contract, you're not just signing the terms of the capital. You're signing the terms of the working relationship. And you're signing the terms of the strategy and a promise that you are making over the next two years, right? And so having that time 
to take a considered decision is in the interest of both the VC and the founder, right? For the founder is because he lets you be in a position to feel at the end of that process, be like, I'm glad I met a VC who was fast and decisive and really liked me to issue a term sheet. And after doing my homework and really doing intensive homework over the past week, I feel comfortable. I made a decision. I'm willing to sign and build that relationship with the, with the VC, right? And for the VC, you know, like it's better too, because you want someone who is like, goes in, thought about it, did a view rushed, and then is considered, you know, and is willing to work with you, right? You know, you don't want to shotgun marriage, you know? And then, you know, then people are going to get frustrated. People are going to get angry. People want to annul the marriage and everybody has a, you know, a trip awful time, right? So I think, you know, let that be a process to have that process and that time to breathe. So that's one. The second one is, I think in terms of reputation is, yeah, you know, when you do reference checks, et cetera, like if the person has a board seat, but the person doesn't turn up or the person turns up late or the person doesn't read the board materials beforehand or doesn't understand the business and you hear that on the reference call, you sometimes any people can be like, oh, that's okay. You know, like, oh, that's okay because the guy wasn't there, right? Good for me. I can run the board myself. You know, I still have board control. I still have two seats out of three or one out of two better than a person's accent. But then I think, and that was what I was thinking for a while, right? But I think the question for you is you have to be there is like, then why am I giving you this control, right? <laughs> if you're not there. Why are we in this term sheet? Why do you have to be a board member? Maybe you can be a board observer, right? If you don't turn up. Or maybe you don't even be on a board, right? It's like, what I'm trying to say is like, if you want, I think there's a lot of promises that VCs can make about how they're going to improve your odds, et cetera. But if you hear the reference checks that this person is not checked in, I mean, come on, right? The board member is not checked in. How could this person help you build good strategy? And when times are tough, how can they help you make a good decision, let alone make the right decision, let alone do a decision that's in the best interest of the company? So why give you away board control rights for someone around there, right? So I think, I think there's a lot of complaints I've heard. This is like, I heard my board members are not checked in. I'm just like, yeah, then, and this, I think is less about often the firm often, I think this might be more tagged to individual partners, um, you know, in terms of their style or preferences. And I think there are good economic reasons for VCs because for them, they're busy. They have to talk to new founders. They have to raise money from LPs. There's lots of good reasons for a partner to be busy, but from a founder perspective, that's very cold comfort, right? You know, like this is your company. That's for them to figure out how they distribute their responsibilities within the fund and all that stuff, right? So I think really be very clear about who's going to be on your board and what's the value going to provide and making sure that they are going to be there for the good times, but also be decisive in the right way, in a thoughtful and considered way during the bad times. The last thing is, I think this is a bit softer, right? But I think the red, that last red flag is, are they trying to pull a fast one on you? Are they trying to blitz you? And this is actually quite tricky because I think all of us as founders, we're always trying to sell, right? And so we respect the hustle that someone's trying to sell you. You know what I mean? And so you're like, oh, they're selling me, I'm selling them, and we're both selling each other. So that's okay. You know, we're all trying to blitz each other. And yeah, I think there's a transactionality, obviously, to it, right? But the truth of the matter is that that transactionality is not the right seat crystal of the relationship. Because 
you're going to be working together on a board or as investors for the next, you know, 10 years. And there's often a phrase that they use, right? Which is like, you know, you can get married and divorced, you know, from your spouse tomorrow, but you can't remove someone from a cat table, you know, for 10 years, right? And so I think that, and they can, there's lots of harm they can do in terms of like vetoing or throwing the sink or, you know, all kinds of random stuff. But there's also a little of good they can do, right? And so you want to have that right sink crystal. And truth again, like I said, is 39 out of 40 chance, there's going to be tough times. And even a 1 in 40 chance, there's going to be a bunch of near-death experiences on the way to get there, right? So there's going to be so many hard decisions. And you don't want someone that's going to be pulling a fast one on you, right? Because then how do you trust that person, right? What's the sink crystal of trust that you're going to have there? And so you want to take the time to be like, okay, is this person telling me the truth, right? The full truth, not half truth, not a lie, whatever it is. Is this person giving me space to learn and get educated? And then to say like, hey, you know, and I remember I had this experience with a great VC and he was like, hey, Jeremy, at the end of the day, like, this is what you want. This is what I want. And the truth of the matter is that we're both going to gain if we hit this level outcome. And if we don't get there, we're both not going to get an outcome. And this is what the parameters are. I'm willing to move to this parameter for you. And this parameter is very important for me. And then let's have that conversation, right? And the reason why this parameter is important to you is because of A, B, and C. And this parameter is important to me because of, you know, D, E, F. And in this scenario, all of it is aligned. And in these two scenarios, these things are not aligned, right? And so how do we want to build that relationship together, right? And I was just like mind blown, right? Because I was just like, oh, this guy's explained to me the clauses where we may choose, you know, this control, right, for example, is not good for me in some scenarios, but it's good for both of us in other scenarios. And I was like, you know, build trust, right? Because I'm going to have to fundraise from the next investor, the Series A investor, the Series B investor, the Series C investor, right? And I got to trust this guy to explain the financial terms because it's a long relationship, right? And so I think be thoughtful about that from point A to point B to point C. At the end of the day, is therefore you have to, I think the three major reflex is one is exploding term sheets or not giving you sufficient time to consider certain negotiation or key clauses is one. Because it's less about the contract, but more about, you know, the starting step of the strategy and your partnership. The second one is really about breakfast checks. If the person is not present, or of course, bad or underperforming as a board member, but not checked in is a big one. And the last one, of course, is they are trying to pull a fast one, trying to blitz you. They're trying to hard sell you and not trying to help you understand. Uh, I think those are three major red flags when you're picking a VC as a founder. Right. Thanks so much, Jeremy, for walking us through how you think about Picking a good VC, doing diligence on them, you know, what are red flags to look up for throughout the entire process. Um, I think that was really, you know, insightful and good sort of learning for me, myself, as like a VC and, you know, as someone who intends to sort of like build a company in the future as well, right? Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave.